What's happening, weirdos? This is Dr. David Rabin, who blew my mind many, many times. Dr. David is a neuroscientist. He's a board-certified psychiatrist. He's a health tech entrepreneur and inventor who has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for over a decade. He's also the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, which developed the Apollo Neuro, which, if you've been listening to this podcast, has absolutely changed my life. Uh, he's an interesting, fa- I'm going to say fascinating man, very interested in consciousness, very interested in everything that I love talking about. And honestly, this episode was like a dose of free therapy for me. And I hope you get as much out of it as I did, because we're talking about some pretty broad, uh, I guess I should say issues that I hope you can relate to. Uh, obviously, we talk a lot about the neuro in this episode. If you guys are interested in the Apollo neuro, you can get one, uh, obviously, quite easily by going to apolloneuro.com slash weird and getting 10% off and showing your support of the show. It's probably helpful to know going in that it is a wearable piece of tech. You wear it around your wrist or your ankle that helps you, uh, helps your body rather recover from stress. Apollo can help you relax, sleep, focus, and be more productive. It's like a wearable hug for the nervous system using touch therapy to help you feel safe and in control. And I can attest that that is absolutely what it does. Uh, it delivers gentle, soothing vibrations like a song. There's different uh, programs that you run, and each one's like a different song that your nervous system can hear in its own language. And it trains you to recover and rebalance after stress. There's the energy and wake up, which we talk a little bit about in this episode, which is like a shot of espresso. It is no joke. Social and open, clear and focused, which is one of my favorite in the morning when I'm sitting down to work. Rebuild and recover is wonderful after a workout or after a particularly stressful situation. Meditation and mindfulness has made my meditation practice easier and way deeper than it's been in years. It relax and unwind is what I put it on when I'm watching TV. And sometimes it's, it's so relaxing. It actually, we watch less TV because I'm like, let's go to bed. And then when I get in bed, sleep and renew. Apollo Neuro actually trains the nervous system to cope better with stress over time. The more you you use it, the better it works. And it was developed, as I mentioned, our guest today, a neuroscientist and board certified psychiatrist who's been studying the impact of chronic stress for nearly 15 years. Apollo's effects on stress, sleep, cognitive performance, and recovery have been proven in multiple clinical trials and real world studies. So this isn't a crystal or a mood ring. This is real science and it's made a real impact on my life. So for 10% off, go to apolloneuro.com slash weird, A-P-O-L-L O-N-E-U-R-O dot com slash weird and give it a try and show your support of this podcast. Also, it's brought to us by our friends at Everlane. Everlane is an ethical and wonderful and wonderfully transparent online clothing company that's encouraging us all to go on an adventure. It doesn't mean uh, you have to go into the jungle or climb a mountain. Maybe you're just reading a new book or trying out a new brunch patio spot. Uh, Everlane, whatever you're 
you're up to has premium essentials to outfit you in comfort. They have so many versatile items that you can dress up and that you can dress down. Uh, I've been very vocal about how much I love their denim jackets. I got one in blue and I got one in black. I've worn that jacket to fancy, fancy things, and I've also just worn it uh, dropping Leela off at school. It is a wonderful thing uh, to have this company that I know is ethical and I know makes high, high, high quality, wonderful clothing that looks great and will last for years to come. They do extensive research and vetting to use ethical factories that provide fair wages and reasonable hours to the skilled people who craft their clothing. They have timeless design and use the finest sustainable materials so you can wear them for years to come. And most retailers hide their markups, but not Everlane. Everlane believes their customers have the right to know how much their clothes cost to make at every stage of production. Everlane has everything you need to upgrade your summer look or your fall look as we're coming into it now. Whether you're going out on the town with friends or having a movie night with the fam, they have swimwear, they have stuff for takeout, they have stuff for staying at home or going out to your favorite late night spot. Their breathable organic cotton trackwear gives an elevated take on tried and true basics. And as I'm a sweatpants person and a sweatshirt person, I am, when I'm home, I'm kicking it in my Everlane sweats and they are truly high quality and wonderful. And if you do have an issue, they accept returns within 30 days of the ship date and all of their uniform clothing comes with a 365 day guarantee. And as I said, ethical factories. So it's a fit to feel good about. So get some uh, wonderful clothing and show your support of this podcast. Go to everlane.com slash weird and sign up for 10% off your first order plus free shipping and get easy returns within 30 days of your ship date. That's 10% off your first order when you go to everlane.com slash weird and sign up. Last but not least is our friends at MeUndies. Today, I've got dinosaurs on them. That's making me feel pretty funky. It's fall, y'all. Time to replace your water intake with pumpkin spice lattes and go way out of your way to step on a crunchy-ass leaf because the coziest time of year is here. So find your comfort in undies, loungewear, and more with MeUndies. Because MeUndies believes that comfort is about more than what's touching your skin. It's about feeling comfortable in your skin. So Val and I heard about MeUndies on another podcast and we did a complete overhaul. Every single pair of our underwear, every single pair of our lounge pants uh, for PJ pants and onesies. I had onesies before. Now I have MeUndies onesies is now the softest micro modal fabric, the funnest patterns and the best fitting underwear I've ever had. Basically imagine the softest thing you've ever felt. Now imagine that same thing, but on your butt. Now you're thinking about MeUndies. They're designed by the country's top softness scientists to be the softest thing you've ever worn, period. From undies to loungewear, their fabrics are breathable, light, and almost irresistibly and irresponsibly cozy. Really, you might want you might never get off the couch again. You've been warned. Available in sizes extra small through 4XL in a variety of classic colors and iconic prints, MeUndies will have your back and your butt all fall long. And they have a wonderful offer for weirdos. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. MeUndies also has a problem-free philosophy. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats and no questions. So to get 15% off your first order free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash weird. That's MeUndies.com slash weird and show your support of the show. Speaking of which, uh, we have two uh, live shows coming up. 
Uh, both at Largo. October 7th is my stand-up show, which is fantastic. Thanks to everybody who came out this month. It was the highlight of my month, as it always is. And October 18th, we're doing another live You Made It Weird at uh, Largo. And I can't announce the guest because it's not confirmed yet, but it's going to be a hoot. For tickets to both of those, go to Largo-LA.com. All right, everybody. Enjoy Dr. David. I really, 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 really love this conversation, and I hope you do too. Get into it. My name is Pete. Katie is recording, and is it okay to call you Dr. David? Sure. Yeah, most people call me Dr. Raven or Dr. Dave. So. Oh, I see. Whatever works. I'm not that picky. I don't want to off-road with Dr. David. I'll go Dr. <laughs> Dave. <laughs> but we weren't sure. It's Ra- Robin? Robin? Raven. Raven. Carnay. I went Rabin. Katie and I were just talking about this. I was like, he's a Rabin. I know he's a Rabin. Just <laughs> that's, a tr- that's the traditional uh, Hebrew pronunciation, but we're Americanized, so I understand. Know, Ellis Island has changed everything. I mean, you're talking to a <laughs> over here. Um, <laughs> Maybe we should edit that out. I don't know if I want people knowing my mother's maiden name. Katie, you can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just bleep it. That's, that'd be funnier. Um, just bleep it as if anyone could spell it. Good luck. But they changed uh, all sorts of stuff, obviously. How, so thank you for taking the time. I'm really excited to talk with you. It's, if it's okay, we're already recording and this is the show. Sounds good. Is this right. audio only or or video? Yeah, it's just audio. audio. Okay. Yeah, I like that you're blurring your background like Deep Throat. It's very <laughs> like where are you right now? Is there just a pile of naked bodies behind you? <laughs> it's a. It's actually. I'm in my office in my house in uh, upstate New York. But the background because we uh, we just got here, so the background is a little barren, and it has a window behind it that throws a lot of light, and so it makes the it, it makes the recording experience a little weird if I don't blur it because it just, just adds too much too much light and washes me out. I understand. That's why my blinds are closed. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not. We don't have to take too much of your time, but I want to introduce the the weirdos. That's what we call our listeners to you. I'm wearing my Apollo today. This is very likewise. I'm wearing it constantly. Ooh, same color. I just want to thank you for it. It's, I I hope you get this all the time, so I won't say it too much, but like without going into too much detail, I was having a really great morning. I was on clear and focused, hanging with my baby. That's a setting on the Apollo. And then I got a text from my parents and that's, and that's all it takes. Dr. Dave, like we are so, and I'd love for you to speak to this. We're so fragile. We're so strong and we're so brave and we're so courageous and we do amazing things. And we're so fragile. It's a both-and situation. And, for example, the way I can be brave, I can do stand-up, I can perform for 10,000 people, and, and my nervous system is, is down for that. It is okay with that. But the temperament that made me into a comedian is also so hypersensitive that a text from my dad that was innocuous put me into a state that I would like into concrete – as opposed to flowing and open and spacious and light, I became solid and rigid. And you know when your teeth just start to hurt? And it's actually worse because you know they didn't mean to upset you. Like if they meant to upset you, you'd just be like, oh, I guess we're fencing now. Like we're having a good healthy sparring match or something. It wasn't that. It was like it felt so unconscious that like 
And and then and then what kicks in is the shame that you're so easily triggered. I don't know if you can relate to that. It's this is Tara Brock, this great Buddhist teacher of ours, is like, it's not the feeling. Most of the suffering is the shame that you're feeling the feeling. And I pride myself on being like a together person, a with it person, and a strong person. If I'm being honest, I like to think of myself as strong. And then I was like, boom, one text, I turn into concrete and I get upset. Here comes the compliment, though. Although I want to talk all about stress. I want to talk about what was going on in my body, all all the different things that my brain thinks is happening, even though it's a text from 6,000 miles away. Which, by the way, is what I did. I put my hand on my chest to love myself. And I said, you are safe. I got you. Like, grown-up Pete has you, mm-hmm. baby Pete. Don't worry. But on <laughs> yep. top of that, Dr. Dave, and I've said this in, in every time we've done a little shout-out for the Apollo, there's something I could do. I And I hope I did it right. I put it on after all the trauma. I put it on Rebuild and Recover. And it's just training. And I feel it. Training me to go like... It feels like that. It feels like someone going, shh, easy, easy, my my darling. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And just like deep breathing or just like someone rubbing your shoulders or something like that, I started to be able to drop the stress. So why don't you talk a little bit about what was happening to me, maybe how stress impacts you in your life, and then what the Apollo and even some of the, the thought techniques that helped me unwind. Sure thing. And I'm so glad that it's helpful for you. It sounds like you used it exactly the right way. Oh, great. Um, in one of many right ways. There's a lot of different ways it can be, Apollo can be used. But, um, you know, I think if you using Rebuild and Recover after any intense physical, mental, or emotional, or even to some extent, spiritual stress, wherever the stress is coming from, um, Rebuild and Recover, we found in studies as well as in the real world, just helps rapidly bring the body back into balance. And it is kind of like what you said, right? It's almost like a swaddling for adults because we like to, we like, like, or or like an adult snoo, right? It's like, we like to think of ourselves as, as far different and, and far more advanced and grown up and mature than we were when we were children. But Sometimes it just takes a text or a parent or a funny look or a word or tone from a from a parent or family member to remind us that we're still just big oh, babies. Doctor right? Dave, we are one tisk away. Somebody can go and you're and you can be triggered by that. This big I, I'm saying this facetiously, big strong man, and you have your you have a house and a car and you shouldn't be so fragile. Wow. And you know what else? And I'm just saying this as to another human, not Apollo specific. I had to go, thank you. I, have you ever played that game with your mm-hmm. response? You go, thank you. Spiritually speaking, you go, I'm not better than people. I am vulnerable. And knowing my vulnerability is a better strength. It's a better strength. Instead of eating or drinking it away or watching John Wick. And I've done all of those things, just watching a violent movie and trying to cathartic, catharsize your, your, your shame and your, and your dread, but just to own it and say, but that's what the Apollo seemed to be doing too. Like, it's okay that you're feeling this way. And I joined it in that mantra. Like I want to think I'm better than people and, and that's separation. And there's actually a beautiful thing in going, 
No, I hurt just like everybody. And I'm breakable just like everybody. And it's exhausting pretending to be Superman when really, Dr. Dave, we're all Batman. We're, <laughs> our parents are dead. We live in a cave. We dress up and fight as best we can. That's why I've always hated Superman and I'll always love Batman. Please continue. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm just so excited to talk about this with you. No, that was great. I, I think that, you know, you really brought up a lot of a lot of great points there, right? And I think that the first point that I'll take on is, you know, one of the things that came up when you first started talking about your experience this morning, which is that when that stress itself is inevitable, right? Mm. You can't stop. None of us can just run away to the point where stress doesn't happen anymore. can't find us. There will always be things that make us stressed out or that challenge us in another way of thinking, right? That challenge us to overcome something or to be, grow and become better and stronger versions of ourselves. And ultimately, when we start to feel emotions, we are often taught that certain emotions are acceptable and certain emotions are unacceptable, right? Preach. Thank you. And, and, and that judgment that we're taught to apply to ourselves in those experiences is actually the single biggest misstep that most of us can avoid that we don't necessarily know how to navigate because we weren't taught it. If we weren't taught it, how could you expect yourself to figure it out? Um, but it is not, it is navigable, right? It's not uncharted territory. People, everything that we think we're facing for the first time, others have faced before. Mm -hmm. And I think from, if we look at the Buddhist traditions or the ancient uh, Hindu and Ayurvedic yogic traditions, as well as the ancient Judeo-Christian traditions around healing and uh, achieving higher states of consciousness and, and well-being, um, they all kind of center on one thing, which is to do everything we can to be present with our emotions when they come in and mm -hmm. to just acknowledge them and sit with them without judgment. Right. Serve them tea. Sit them sit right. down and give them tea. Yes. And as, and as you said, and this is something that I use with every single one of my clients and I've used with myself as well in my own healing uh, journey is to express gratitude and thanks to ourselves and for the feeling that we're feeling in this moment. And what happens when we do that and we express thanks or gratitude for that experience rather than judging it is all of a sudden after, you know, five seconds, 10 seconds, a minute or two go by, the, um, the intensity around that feeling starts to kind of dissolve a little bit. Yep. And we start to naturally get a sense and understanding of where is this coming from? What is this signal, this emotional signal trying to tell me? What is the message behind this signal that I'm receiving from something that's either happening because of a way that I'm looking at myself or a way that I'm, or something that I'm getting from the environment and try to, we could try to figure out where that's coming from and then solve the problem or really get to the root of what that emotion is trying to tell us to do. And when we, when we allow judgment in, oftentimes just because we've been taught to, when we allow judgment in, what happens is our mind starts to go, instead of being present with that experience, our mind starts to go back into the past mm. to the, to the associations with that emotion. Like, oh, I'm feeling sad. I was told when I was young that sadness is not acceptable, right? And there's then then you start to get into the shame, right? There's something wrong with me for feeling sad or there's something wrong with me for feeling angry. And then it starts to become self-deprecating and highly self-critical, like, uh, why me? Why am I always angry, right? Why am I always sad? 
And then that starts to attach the emotion, the signal to our identity. And then that causes it to perpetuate over time and into the future. And so we can stop that entire cycle by just taking a step back and recognizing in the moment, bringing our minds back into our centered into our bodies, which happens with soothing touch, the pressure on the chest you hinted at earlier. That's what I was doing with it. Yep. Right. Deep breathing, hugs from loved ones, holding pets, Apollo, yoga, gentle exercise, meditation, all of these things work in the same way to center our minds back into our bodies back into the present moment and allow us to express gratitude for being in control of our attention and being able to sit with whatever it is we're experiencing in this moment without judgment. Mm, I love it. We could end right now. Everybody's got their money worth. It's a free podcast, but they got their money's worth. If we hadn't been in the car, um, Val was with me. That's my wife. And she was being very supportive. And she, we were like, if we weren't driving right now, we would just cuddle puddle. Like that's all... There's like a, we didn't, I wasn't ready to conceptualize it. I was still in the thick of it. It's almost like a bomb has gone off and like in a movie and you hear that like, and we love talking about feelings. But then again, even more shame was coming where I was like, look, you can't even go to your resources right now because you're so stressed and so concretized that you can't even start talking about it as a concept. And that's when I remembered what exactly what you're saying, which is like, it's it's because you think you shouldn't be feeling this way. I you know I, I haven't talked to many people that not only know relate to what I said, which is saying yes, thank you, which is my mantra for most things, to the feeling, to this ugly, horrible beast that's robbing in your mind, robbing you of the joy of the moment. And what's worse, I think you'll recall in the story, I said I was having a great morning, but don't you think the beast loved telling me that? It was like, and you were having a great morning and then it was taken from you. Do you ever get the feeling that like these things are like sugar? It's like feeding the bad microbes in your stomach, like just shit, like, or, or, or feeding like nasty things. I, I like the junk food thing. It feels like a cheap fuel for your cheap identity and your cheap identity is what's owed to you. Who should be respecting you? Who should be kissing your ass? Who should be giving you things? And basically the answer to that is often everybody. Everybody should be worshiping me. And, and then that's broken. And then it, there's almost like an excitement that the ego can't wait to feed on the, the, the perceived disrespect from the dad. It gets excited. And you have to break out of that trance. Can you relate to that feeling? Eckhart Tolle calls it the pain body. It's like, he yeah. says, whenever you overreact, it's because it's the collective, almost cellular memory of every bad thing that's ever happened to you becomes like another entity and it possesses you. And you mentioned the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition before. I, I've had teachers explain to me that they think that the demonic stories of Jesus casting out demons we're things like this that we're dealing with. When you see red, when you white out, when you become snapped in some way that you can't get over a looping negative thought, that does feel like a demonic possession to me. For sure. And it, it can feel like whatever we practice interpreting it as, right? In mm. a lot of a lot of I think the easiest way to think about it is that we are we are God of our own reality, right? Mm. And divinity 
exists not only all around us and above us, like we were taught, but many of us were taught, but also within us. It's not exclusionary of us. It is part of us and we are part of it. And so one of the most fundamental, everything is a practice makes perfect situation, right? One of the most fundamental traumas that we face as human beings is that we deny our own in our own individual part of divinity, right? Mm -hmm. We deny that we are part of godliness and holiness Mm -hmm. and we are sinners. We are, we are only capable of doing wrong. We are always in a state of atonement or repentance to God, right? As a God that is outside of us. And so, so the idea is if we practice thinking about, that's just one of many concepts that you can get trapped in that many of us get trapped in growing up in the J Christian religions, But I think that there's a really interesting idea there, which is that if you practice thinking about the world in that way as God only exists outside of us without us being involved in it, then you get really, really good at and automatically basically thinking about the world from that perspective where we start to be our, our relationship to holiness or divinity gets fractured. Right. And we do not feel accepted necessarily by the whole. We feel like we're kind of on the outside of the whole. Mm. And, and that's one of the most fundamental teachings that we try to work with people, spiritually speaking, to repair in the psychotherapy context. And what a lot of people have been doing in the tribal uh, healing context in indigenous cultures in Africa and South America for, you know, who knows how long, tens of thousands of years, potentially. Mm. Um but this goes for literally everything that we do, everything that we think about in the world with everything we practice, we get better at good and bad. Perceiving ourselves as, as separate will become more powerful over time and stronger the more that we think about ourselves that way. So to, to the credit of what you're saying, it, it really is about acknowledging that and actually expressing gratitude to witness and ex- be part of that experience so that we can then recognize the opportunity for change and growth. Well, that's, so again, Eckhart Tolle says, it's easy to say the world is mad. It's insane. It's harder to say I am insane. And the brilliant and beautiful thing about saying I am insane, and Dr. Dave, I am telling you, I am insane. And and frankly, I believe somewhere in you, you're a little insane, meaning it's a collective, meaning it's like we're all nerve endings in one brain. And I, I don't see the insanity out there and I'm the sane one. I think that's a real temptation. But when you go, I am insane, that is an act of sanity. It, it's because you've separated yourself from the insanity long enough, like what we're saying with the feelings, you've stepped outside of it long enough to be the impartial, we could say witness or whatever, but you're the impartial one noticing some, a phenomenon inside of you that we're calling insanity. And that's quite literally not just the first step, but a really important step to healing. What, what would you call that in your field? Is that, is that dissociative? <laughs> dissociative. I, no, I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think that there, it has a couple different names. I think the, the way that I would describe it is acknowledgement and acceptance. Mm. Right. So it's really accepting our own. It's a first acknowledging, like when a thought or feeling comes in, right. The first step that we, that we are, that we teach with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a brilliant form of psychotherapy, um, is to acknowledge the feeling, right. Without judgment, we're just saying, Hey, I see you. I see you as a thought. I see you as a feeling. I'm not judging you. I'm just feeling it. I'm just beautiful. 
right? Because if you t- if you go get out of here, it charges it up, right? It it, it right. like a like a crying child or something. It just makes it worse. Right. Because the whole reason why we're feeling anything or thinking about anything is because something is drawing our attention for a reason. And we may not necessarily think that because, again, we weren't taught it, but that's the facts. The facts are that if we feel something or think something, there's always some reason behind why that thing is coming up. It doesn't mean that that feeling is an accurate representation or that the thought is an accurate representation, but it does mean that there's something that's in, that's responsible for that thought and feeling. Yes. It's it's like drinking is the symptom of the problem. You know what I'm saying? Like you might say I have a drinking problem, but really like deeper down, there might be a reason you're medicating yourself in that way. Does that seem parallel to what you're saying? Yeah. And I think, and I think to that end, if you think, and I also uh, have addiction medicine as a big part of my specialty and practice. And so just to tie those ends together, I think the, the next step is to imagine yourself as the anger emotion or as jealousy Mm -hmm. or as um, fear or sadness. And you're knocking at the door being like, Hey, bud, I want to tell you something. I need to get your attention for a moment. And the person just ignores you, right? Doesn't answer the door or opens the door, sees you and then shuts the door in your face. Right. And that's, that's not going to make anybody feel good. That's it. Right. And we're supposed to all be friends here, right? We're all part Mm. of the same organism. We're all part of the same experience. We're all Mm. supposed to be friends. So when you just take the time to acknowledge the emotion as in a friendly, gracious way, all of a sudden, most emotions dissolve within about 90 seconds, then you can get on with your life. And that just requires a little bit of time to in the acceptance acknowledgement and acceptance phase of I notice this without judgment and I and I feel it and accept it as part of me is it and then that forces the subsequent question right which is something we teach in CBT cognitive behavioral therapy all the time which I think is like the golden gem of of CBT uh, at the core which is to then ask the question of once we've accepted what we're experiencing in this moment is this true. Mm. and useful to me right now. And that test is the test that all of our thoughts should pass through to enter, to allow us to devote attention to them. If we have a thought that is, or or a feeling that is not both true and useful to us, then instead of judging it, we just say, okay, I acknowledge you. I accept that you're part of me. Thanks, but no thanks. I'll come back to you later. That's right. right. Yeah. I love that. Do, do you know Byron Katie's work at all? It reminds me of yeah. that, I, w- which I love. She she would even go, none of them are true, <laughs> like really in like a very far zoomed out way. Well, well, when you do that exercise, I think the most miraculous and interesting thing that most people realize is after about a, cu- a couple of weeks or a month of doing that, we realize that almost everything that comes in is either not true or not useful to us. And so we start to be able to understand that we've trained our minds to let in, not necessarily any fault of our own, but we've been taught to think about the world in a way that allows in useless and untrue thoughts. And right? repeated over and over and over. Over and yeah. over and over again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the more that we spend time, our precious limited attention each day, thinking about those kinds of things, those are usually things we don't have control over, which is why they're useless. And therefore they cause anxiety, which is the feeling of being out of control. Mm. Right. So the more time we then say, okay, I'm grateful for the opportunity to take back control of my attention by acknowledging this thought is either not true or not useful right now. We regain control of our attention. We allow the thought to pass. 
Hence the practice of mindfulness, right? You're mindful of the thought. You don't judge it. You don't associate it with your identity as a result of judgment. You let it pass. And then all of a sudden you've reclaimed your attention. And what do you do with that attention? You direct it to things you can control your breath, your movement, your expression of gratitude or forgiveness or compassion or self-love or, or any number of other things that we have control over. And then all of a sudden, guess what? You practice that for a little bit. And then all the useless and untrue thoughts start to get filtered out automatically. And then you start to feel more in control of your life because you're spending more time in terms of percentage of time each day thinking about things you actually have control over. That's right. I love that. I mean, this comes up a lot on this podcast. Don't believe everything you think. I think I see that bumper sticker every once in a while and I'm like, look, I'm not a bumper sticker guy. But if I was, it would be don't believe everything you think. Because what you're saying is we believe our thoughts are repetitive, insane, untrue. If you pause and look at them, they are untrue. And if people are, are, one of the things Katie teaches is if you're having a feeling, let the feeling speak, let the feeling talk to you. And now you'll have the thought behind the feeling. And then you can investigate if that feeling is true. But I feel like so many of us just know ourselves to be our thoughts. Like what else could we be? And and we're sort of back to the fundamental problem, (laughs) right? Is you're like, what do you mean? Don't believe your thoughts. I'm not trying to put down family members, but if I said to family members, I'd be like, don't believe your thoughts. I don't think they, not all of them would have the, uh, the footing to follow me into that lesson. Well, it's a, it, well, it's a slippery slope, right? And we have to be very careful with our wording here because language is the way that we construct and sustain our reality, right? <laughs> so when we think about the, what you just said, which is really important, right? Don't believe your thoughts that can be a very slippery slope into a world of delusionality or into a world of, of, uh, of a total disregard for all of the things going around us, many of which are real. Um, and so I think the real essence here is not, not necessarily to not believe your thoughts, but to question what you're taught, right? Don't necessarily disbelieve by de facto, but question your thoughts, question the things that you were taught and try to understand, is this coming from me, right? Is this something that comes from me that I've learned from my own life experience that I know without a doubt in my bones to be true? Or is it something that comes from someone else that taught me this that doesn't necessarily seem to be consistent with my day-to-day experience? And then when you can start to think about that, then you can start to understand what's yours and what's not and what's worthy of your attention practice and what's not. You're killing it. You're killing me right now. I'm dying. I'm doing backflips. This is just exactly what I'm so happy to be putting out there. I I don't mean for addiction to keep coming back, but I consider myself an addict in a lot of ways. And I stopped drinking. and And the reason I stopped drinking was I read a book. It's called This Naked Mind. I think you would enjoy it because what it does is it asks you to ask yourself, who told you drinking was a good time? And Dr. Dave, I don't care what it is. It could be mini golf. It doesn't have to be destructive to your body. Just asking yourself, wait, do I really like this or am I just doing the impression of what I think I'm supposed to be? And this this comes into gender identity, identity as an American, identity as a race. Like, am I just going around like a marionette being like, of course I like Phil Collins. I'm a 42-year-old white man. Do you really? And I actually do like Phil Collins, but I'm just saying like, 
one of the beautiful things about consciousness, becoming conscious, and it goes back to the triggering. My dad triggered me, and and to see it as an opportunity to go, why? Let's get weird. Let's get embarrassing. Let's have the, the, the guts to be as frank and as honest as our unconscious is. Because our, un- our unconscious is ready to give you a dream that makes you feel sexually strange. It's ready to give you a dream that makes you feel like a sociopathic murderer. It is playing with all the cards. And if you dare just to go in the shallow end of your unconscious and, and be as frank with yourself consciously as your unconscious is, sending all the emotions and the thoughts knocking to your door, real progress seems to be made. Would you agree with that? Like we have to have courage to get fierce and, and go, who am I really? What's going on here? I don't like I don't like baseball like I had one of those when I was 12. Dad, I don't like baseball. I just like attention. I like the uniform, you know, like these sorts of things. Yeah, without a doubt. And <laughs> and I think that it it has a lot to do with uh with the idea of wanting to know, right? Wanting to know particularly about the unknown. And and rather than embracing this idea of what we were many of us were taught, which is that I must know who I am. Right. I must understand everything about myself and how I fit into the society or this particular instance of, hu- of human culture that I grew up in. Perhaps there's something more. Right. It's the idea that perhaps there's something more. Perhaps there's more to me that I'm not aware of and that I, by embracing what I don't know as equal to what I know in terms of importance, allows me to embrace self-discovery without judgment, right? It's again, going back to that full circle of, of we're taught to judge. So we will. And the other part of it is that we're creatures of habit as well, right? So the more we do anything, the more familiar it seems, and that thing could be destructive and harmful to us, like an addiction. And we still find comfort in it because it's familiar. And that, and the amygdala in the center of our brains, the, uh, core part of our fear response, which also was involved in managing appetite and hunger and food drives, as well as sexual drives, um, is basically detecting at, at its most fundamental core, is this familiar or is this unfamiliar? Mm. Familiar at times of stress is what we cling to because Anything that's unfamiliar, as you might imagine, in a time of stress or where our body perceives us to be under a potential survival threat, even though we may actually be very safe, but we're too overstimulated, too overwhelmed, we have too many responsibilities, too many infantilizing comments from our parents. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Right. Any number of these things or too much news, right? Any number of these things can start to trick our bodies into thinking that we're actually in survival threat when we're not. And so in survival states or any state of chronic chronic stress, our bodies automatically cling to the familiar and reject automatically the unfamiliar. And they reject the unknown and anything that has to do with uncertainty because we deem that as being potentially threatening. If it's unknown, it's threatening. So so by using techniques that we talked about earlier, the deep breathing, the self-touch, the meditation, the mindfulness practices that we just talked about, things like Apollo that deliver soothing touch to the skin, they actually quiet the amygdala, right? They remind that part of the amygdala that is blasting off, being like unfamiliar, unfamiliar, uncertainty, danger, right? They remind that part that actually 
if you have the time to pay attention to something familiar, like the feeling of someone, loved one giving you a hug or holding your hand, or the feeling of Apollo gently vibrating on you, or the feeling of a deep breath coming into your lungs, then you can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. And all of a sudden, within a few thought cycles of that, which are predominantly subconscious, the entire stress response de-escalates. And then we trigger the recovery response to turn on, and that diverts resources back to the things that we consider to be important, which are being able to control our attention, regulate our emotions, divert uh, to facilitate reproduction, immunity, creativity, and all the other stuff that digestion, right, good quality sleep and rest and recovery, all of that stuff gets resources taken away when our body perceives survival. Karate kick. Survival threat. (laughs) I love everything you're saying. And it really speaks to my experience this morning. I'm aware of the effect of stress on digestion. And Val and I were driving to breakfast and I got there and that in the restaurant, I give zero fucks. I'm putting my hand on my chest and just, I could have made myself cry just going like, darling, darling, that was so hard for you. Not saying... What he just said, like what he said, you, if you read it, you wouldn't even understand why I was upset. I didn't even fully understand intellectually why I was upset, but I, I, we're not concerned with that. But like touching and loving Apollo going nuts, you know, I keep it in the 40%, but you know what I mean? Like feeling all of that. Right. I love how you explained it. If I can slow down and basically self-parent, I feel my inner child freaking out. I said to my, I said to Val, I wrote it down. I go, no wonder you love booze. Uh, I've had things with nicotine gum. I've had that because you want something reliable. Your right. inner child is and so, quick and quick. It's yeah. it's not always the same, but it's in the ballpark of the same. And my parents did the best they could, but I grew up in a situation that was not very reliable. So, like, I get kind of kicked back into that, and suddenly I'm in the dryer tumbling around, and there's my dog who stresses me out quite a bit because I don't like noise. Um, and, it's, and it got me off my train of thought. But I was going to say this to you. I noticed that when I got divorced, and this was when I was 28. This is a, wa- a long time ago. It's as close as I came to buying a Red Sox hat I've ever come in my life. And... I looked into it and they were saying just what you're saying, that at times of trauma, national trauma, look at it. Look at what happens in the country when things like 9-11 happen. I'm not saying this is bad or stupid or embarrassing. I'm just saying it's a, it's a macro version of what you're saying. We do it writ large when there's a national tragedy. We cling to the familiar. Now mm-hmm. is the time for the symbols for the rituals, for the group identity, for the T-shirts, and, and you and you see it even happening. Uh, certainly, in in these uh, not so times, is is we're under too much stress. But it actually introduces some compassion. Like there's a way for me to take your words and I think turn weaponize them and be like, "See, you're a bunch of idiots. You're just stressed, man. I'm stressed, and I double down so hard on my position." And now that the, the COVID is, is easing up a little bit, I understand it's not done, but it seems to be easing up a little bit. I think we're coming up a little bit from that stress and going like, wait, it's like the morning after an orgy. Like, what was that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, because you're not horny anymore. Why? Now you're not stressed anymore. Why was I uh, doing all that stuff? Um, did that make any sense? Yeah. And I think to that point that we are all we are all stressed right now, right? I think we cannot deny 
it, we cannot deny that we are all stressed and that we're going through stressful times and that we all wish that we had quick ways to deal with it, right? Or even faster ways to deal with it than we've had in the past. We all wish for instant gratification because instant gratification has been something that we've been taught exists since we were children with just the feeling of earning money, right? The idea that you could do something and then get a, re- a monetary reward as a result is in a lot of ways, a feeling of instant gratification mm. that is a taught feeling, right? And wow. this is activating the same parts of the brain or very similar parts of the brain, the feeling of earning money that are activated when you were, to, uh, if you were to shoot, snort a line of cocaine, right? The, wow. the reward centers of the brain are triggered very similarly by similar things. And so when you talk about addiction, I think it's really important to acknowledge talking about acknowledgement and acceptance, right? Is the idea that we're all addicted to something and that's usually money. And sometimes it's lots of other things too. Um, and the, and the question is if we know that, that money doesn't make us happy beyond earning like 90, you know, 60 to 90 grand a year and covering our basic expenses. We know that the surveys have shown time and time again, that once you get beyond about, you know, thirty or $40,000 of additional spending money a year, at that point, you're basically just worsening your suffering by having more of it, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. actually no different than the tolerance that builds up in a lot of respects to using any of the drugs we're talking about, alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, opiates, amphetamines. They all result in, they all have this perceived instant gratification reward that results in profound, radically destructive outcomes because if they're used as an escapist shortcut. Mm. Why? There is no escape, right? There absolutely is no escape. So, Buddha, is that you? <laughs> that is, keep going. There's no escape. What freedom? There's, there's no escape. Yeah, there's, That's freedom. There, that is freedom, right? Acknowledging yes. that there's no escape and, and accepting it, right? Going back to the same themes allows us to, to re- relieve judgment from our current experience. All of these, these training, these skill sets, like, Practicing acknowledgement, that's a skill. Practicing acceptance, that is also a skill. Practicing gratitude, that's a skill. Mm. Practicing instant gratification, that's a skill, although it's not necessarily one that serves us in the long term. Mm. So by asking the hard questions of, is this serving me? Is this action, this thought process, this thing that I'm participating in or doing serving me right now? Is it useful to me right now? Then, which, you know, doing these techniques like the self-touch and the breathing and Apollo and all these things help to center us enough to ask that question rather than just assume because it's familiar that it's right, right? Then that allows us to ask the question, do I really need this cigarette? Do I really need this drink? Or am I doing this because I'm going down a path of an old thought process or cycle that I've been taught or taught myself to escape when there's no escape? And then I just find myself right back in the beginning again, feeling miserable and anxious after the orgy's worn off and I don't know any of the people in the room anymore yeah. and I don't know where I am or what's going on, right? And then you're left with feelings of shame and guilt. And so the idea is, can we avoid shame and guilt? Of course not. They will happen. Stress is unavoidable. It will happen. The idea is, can we question this, the coping strategies that we have been practicing rather than just accepting them as familiar and true by default? Can we question them and at least understand if this is not serving me, let's replace it with something that is sustainable, right? Mm. Let's replace it with something that actually facilitates my growth and the growth of good, powerful emotional muscles like gratitude and forgiveness and acceptance and 
compassion mm. over time. And then as we practice those things in the context of context of acknowledging there is no escape, then we facilitate engagement, right? We facilitate self-knowing and radical non-judgmental self-inquiry, which leads us on our trajectory of continuous upward growth rather than a trajectory of stagnation. I could cry. I love this so much. It's it's just beautiful. It, 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 taking that time. I mean, I've, I thought 9,000 things to ask you when you stopped. And I was like, stop thinking of things to ask. So here we are. I'm not sure what I'm going to ask next. But what you said was just so powerful. One, th- one image that came to mind is it's not that we're just simply not believing everything we think and there, and also everything we feel, which is like a way of your body to think. We're not just sending them into a void. We're sort of, at least at the early stages, catching them in a room made of better thoughts, right? right. Meaning the, the belief, like you and I share the belief that compassion, patience, forgiveness – uh, not overstimulating, not starting your morning by reading, listen to the insanity, someone else's thoughts. Like you have so many thoughts that you're going to read someone else's asinine thoughts, not useful micro updates on a story that won't have unfolded for another month. You're going to get tick by tick by tick updates into your nervous system. So what I hear both of us agreeing on is... And then it becomes part of your consciousness, right? Yes. That's what I mean. It's already too crowded up here. But nobody taught us the, the, the inherent value of pure life, of pure being. It right. was like, uh, not to shit on Jay Leno, but he, he told the story that I found very disturbing. He was like, whenever I go to the beach, I sit on the beach and I'm like, I must have been here for six hours. I look at my watch and it's been 15 minutes. And I was like, I, I, I don't know, Jay. I'm just saying, Jay, that's because no one taught us, darling. No one taught us how to sit on the beach. No one taught us how to enjoy anything. And, and, and that not that weird? Uh, without getting too into it, my dad was asking me for, for tickets to see John Mulaney. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. And for some reason I was like, I, I don't know. I don't want to get too over Sherry about my dad, but I was like, dad, I, I feel more like you want to go and you want me to get you the tickets more than you'd enjoy the show. Does that make sense? Sort of in yeah. like meaning again, my poor dad. I don't know if anyone taught him how to just enjoy something, how to drop anchor into the present moment and abandon your will to a comedian or a movie or a play or a symphony or dance. Allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to like get sucked away by the river. And it's not, that didn't make me mad at my dad. That made me sad. And it made me wonder if I struggle from the same lack of vulnerability to really experience anything. So that's why something is innocuous. Obviously there's the ego hurt of like, Oh, Mulaney's more famous than me. I, I, I'm brave enough to, to look at that. Like you want to go see Mulaney. Uh, you couldn't tell me one of my jokes. If I put a gun to your head, these types of things are hurtful, but that's just base level shit. Really lower than that is you're like, I worry that you can't enjoy that show and that, but then like you always, this is what Katie says too. I worry that I can't enjoy a show because I'll just right. be sitting there thinking about the show. Get my dad out of it. He's just my mirror. 
I know you right. know this. He's just my mirror. But unfortunately, he's reflecting back to me in that very innocuous and innocent and fine text, reflecting back to me all of these insecurities and fears like a werewolf or a, or a vampire. I'm worried that I'm a monster. It has nothing to do with him. So this, this is what's happening without reading the news every morning. I, w- I was just talking to somebody about imprinting, how if I, if you and I, just by virtue of saying patience, graciousness, gratitude, beauty, love, justice, kindness, uh, drop anchor in the present, just by you hearing me say those things and me hearing you say those things, you're affecting my behavior. Would you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. And I, and I think that... Or whatever you- came to mind, that whole tirade. Yeah, no, that was great. And I, and I think that, you know, you, you went there and you, you went through the process of asking, you know, what does this mean about me? And then what does this mean about this person who's saying this thing to me? And then again, what does it say? What does this mean about me again? Right. Yeah. And it's not necessarily what, what it, and it's, again, when you get to the bottom, it's not necessarily what it means about me. It's about uh, what, what is this bringing up about the way that I see myself or the way that I was taught to see myself that is, making this experience that I'm having that should be innocuous. It should be just uh, uh, another thing that you don't, you don't feel should bring up these kinds of feelings or that, or that you may not feel these kinds of feelings are warranted or that sadness is warranted. And then you actually, by doing that process of self-inquiry, you can kind of get down to the bottom of it and see what part of you is hurting as a result of having this interaction happen. Right. 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 And it could be more than one part. Um, and I think that there's, you know, ultimately we've, we've been taught for generations. This isn't even just in our own generation, but in generations going back, probably, you know, who knows, maybe a thousand years, maybe more. We've been taught quite, but especially in the last hundred years, we've been taught to be much more human doings than human beings, mm-hmm. right? But we are human beings, and we have the capacity to also do and be productive. If we deprioritize the being part of ourselves, which is the part that's just capable of being present and, and listening to whatever it is that's going on around us without judgment, because judgment is a doing thing, right? Then what happens is we forget how to listen. We forget how to be. And yeah. a big part of our minds are entirely focused on only doing stuff and only the outcome. What we talk, what is the most common, one of the most common phrases we hear and we've often used ourselves, right? It's the means to an end. It's the idea that the process doesn't matter. And what I have to do to get to this end doesn't matter. I'll do whatever it takes to accomplish X goal or to get to whatever milestone. And that could not be more off base because it is the process itself yeah. That is our path to growth and self-discovery. It's what Alan Watts says. It's like the it, thinking the end, the last note of a symphony was the point of the symphony. As right. if it was, da 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 dun, that's okay, that's the point. Like that is, that is how we look at our lives. By the way, it's very, it's almost intuitive of you. The, the text that came after that was sort of about how John Mulaney's new hour is about his addiction. And then my dad sort of was like, uh, everybody seems to be like shining a light on their flaws when really just do the right thing and you'll always be on top. 
And I almost wanted to throw up because my spirituality is you don't come to God or truth or love by doing it right. You come to truth, love, God, the mystery by doing it wrong. Or Leonard Cohen, the cracks are where the light comes through. For fuck's sake, Dr. Dave, I'm sorry you got me on this morning. I made a TV show called Crashing, Crashing, not Flourishing, Crashing, because it's a celebration of what Richard Rohr calls falling upward, that we learn by being broken, that I learned by being broken by his text about how being broken is fucked up and you should just be a 1950s gentleman when you and I both know that 1950s gentleman had weird black and white pornography under his mattress that he felt really bad about, but no one ever told him that real strength was owning his vulnerability. And I keep getting fresh reminders from my dad. That not only was that not taught to me, but it's still not a conversation we can have. And if that's not heartbreaking, I don't know what is. I do have a question to follow up, but does that make you think anything? Because we're just talking at this point, and I love it. Yeah, this is great. I uh, and I appreciate I appreciate you being so uh, forthcoming and vulnerable in this in this well, context. You're brilliant, and I trust you immediately. I trusted you five seconds in. I was like, you can have it all. Anything you you have. I feel like you should send me a bill, but like as, as friends, whatever you want to say about it, this is the podcast. It's like an overshare podcast. <laughs> well, and I, and I, uh, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, I think there's a lot that can be learned from this by the people who are like the folks who are listening. And I, so it's mm. a real pleasure to be able to this have, the- to have spoken to you on this yes. day. Yes. Um, yes. Good. I, I feel the same way. Everything you're saying is like pure nutrition for the, for the heart. And I'm just like, Whoa, People are going to get to hear it. So you did something that a lot of people, I think, will be touched by. So right back at you. So well, and, and can you ahead, do you mind if I address your question about imprinting before you yes. go on to the next question? Because I think this is person. really this is really important, and a lot of people don't understand it. Again, we weren't taught it necessarily in this way, but the idea is that an Eric Kandel. Uh, who is one of the most famous neuropsychiatrists in the world, won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for discovering the mechanism by which our neurons work together to uh, form and sustain memories in the short term and the long term. And what's really fascinating about that is most of those memories are stored around three different kinds of experiences, experiences that are considered to be safe, experiences or safe and rewarding experiences that are considered to be neutral and meaning not safe or threatening per se, just kind of neutral experiences. And then experiences that are considered to be frightening, threatening, or fear inducing because they are signaling a potential survival threat. Hmm. And so, and, and so though, which, and survival threat, I mean, lack of air, lack of water, lack of food, uh, lack of shelter, lack of acceptance by our peers and our community um, or the threat of such pain is another example, right? And so if we think about that concept of doing something like thinking about ourselves as uh, not good enough to be able to accomplish our goals, as one example, strengthens neural connections and strengthens the identity part of our brain's connections with that part of ourselves that feels like we are not capable, we are not worthy, we are not deserving, we are not enough. And that can stem into other parts of our consciousness, like we see often, especially in my practice, but it's very, very common, which is the 
the conception of I am not worthy of being loved, right? Because love was always something that was, or oftentimes something that was only given to us when we did something to deserve it. Mm. And so which was at the discretion of our, of our peers and our parents, right. Mm -hmm. In most cases or of our community. And so with that in mind, it's important to recognize that at the core of the healing process, it's that we have, that we are number one, all worthy of love and that we are capable. If we are capable of expressing gratitude and, and forgiveness and compassion and love to others, we're certainly capable of giving it to ourselves and that that is enough. And that if we don't practice in the, if we don't practice thinking about that, speaking it, saying, I deserve love. I deserve compassion. I deserve forgiveness and gratitude. When you say it, you imprint it. When mm. you write it, you imprint it. The more that you, that you engage with these, well, let's call them emotional skills. When the more that you engage with them, the stronger the neural connections get in our brains, the tighter the synapses get, the more likely it is that we will experience the world from a perspective and a framework of gratitude rather than one of fear and victimization. And so, and so that imprinting process is absolutely fundamental to the way that we learn and develop as human beings throughout the course and all animals, not just humans, but the way that we develop as human beings throughout the course of our lives we use written word and language. So the, when we think about imprinting in the context of language, the words that we practice using create the reality that we wind up living. Right. Wow. So just think about that and the power that can be restored to our sense of self. When you think about the most fundamental power that we have to create our outcome in our lives can be based solely on or rooted in at least the words that we choose something we have control over to describe ourselves in the world around us. I am doing a backflip in my heart right now. I just yesterday I was writing and before I wrote, I I, I'll write out affirmations. It's something that uh, this wonderful artist, Jeremy Hoffeld taught me. And it was like, I am, Ideas come to me easily. My work is important and touches people. The world is better because of my work. Uh, I am a source of divine creativity. It flows through me effortlessly, as easily as sunlight hitting my skin. That's how where my ideas come from. And the, and the day's always better. The, the, it's always better to start. And that I was comparing that morning to a morning where I started by watching some comedian on Joe Rogan's podcast complaining about the government being invasive with COVID, which whether that, that may or may not be a valid point, but it was just such a gnarly way of starting my day. And you say, as if you're not you, why am I doing this? Of course, there's addiction going on. I, I can't stand to be bored. I was just peeing. It wasn't even a poo. It was a pee video. <laughs> I couldn't be... Still, but it's conversations like this that remind me that like, to make it fun, you can say like, spells are real. When I say, Dr. Dave, I hope you have a beautiful afternoon. It reminds you just on a very literal level that the potential of a beautiful afternoon is real. It's within our grasp. It's in your grasp. It it is like an incantation almost. 
That's exactly right. And and it makes you, and you're saying neuroscience-wise, it probably makes you start thinking of what did beautiful afternoons look like in the past? How can we recreate them? What did they look like? Were you peeing looking at your phone? Or were you dropping anchor and going, oh my God. I've, I've had moments this week, just because you seem like this sort of person. If you can really drop into the into the moment with, through practice, through getting that pathway nice and deep and carved, the, the pathway of the present moment. I can walk my daughter trying to get her to go to sleep around the house, and it looks like a dream. It looks like a virtual reality immersive video game with the most impressive graphics I've ever seen. Suddenly the ordinary becomes very, 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 very deeply fascinating. I see you. Are, are, are we running out of time? <laughs> no, no, we're not. I was actually your what you were saying reminded me of. I don't even need to look it up because I'm pretty sure. I Please look it, it up. Please. Well, it's, it's that Robert Frost poem that you know, right? Two roads diverge in a yellow wood. Yeah. I took the road less traveled. Yeah. Right. It's that idea that that there are always multiple paths, and if we want to bring it break it down to the simplest path that Robert Frost as Robert Frost does, right? There are always two roads one of which is the familiar road and one of which is the unfamiliar road, oh the road God, less it's, traveled. It's your thoughts are traveling on the road. It's your neurons are traveling. It's you on the road. Exactly. And if you choose to take the road that you've traveled over and over and over again, whether it's serving you or not, then you are creating your reality around that practice of just following along no, and not and not really questioning, you know, is this the road that's my path? Is this my path? Whereas if you stop, stop at the fork and say, okay, there's two paths. This is the path I've always taken and ask the question, is this path getting me to where I actually want to go? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if it's not, then the road less traveled certainly becomes a much more interesting choice. Unless we stop at the divergence where the, where the, where the road diverges in the yellow wood, right? Unless we actually stop at that point and ask the question, the opportunity to even take a different path doesn't, it's elusive to us, right? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily be, become as noticeable and apparent as it is. What the hell is water? Said the fish. Right. Like you, you're not even aware that you're making a choice. And, right. and that speaking of, uh, it reminds me from the Jesus tradition of, uh, wide is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the path that leads to life. I know a lot of people have misappropriated, I would say, that into a teaching about the afterlife, heaven and hell. Only a few people get to go to the, the golden city where all the right people give each other eternal high fives. That is such a prostitutization of a really beautiful thing, which is similar to what Frost is saying, which is like, notice, uh, there's a bird talker, one of my favorite bands, They're, they have a lyric in their song, I'll do better in the morning. And it goes, my brain always, I only do what I have done is one of the lyrics. I'll do better in the morning. And it goes, my brain always breaks things into two. And I always pick the easy one. That seems to be what we're talking about. Easy is the wide one that leads to destruction, or you could just say unconsciousness, or just leads to doing what you've already done. So when you think about a beautiful afternoon, chances are you're probably doing something you haven't done or thinking something you haven't thought. And isn't that a small awakening? Like going like, shit, I've been playing the same record every morning. <laughs> 
Right. And, and, and it's also stopping to remember that when we're seeking a beautiful afternoon, for instance, it reminds us that, or a beautiful day or whatever it might be, that we're, we're seeking awe, right? We're seeking inspiration. That is the path to inspiration, the path to awe and awe-inspiring moments to combine the two are really what we all want and what we all desire because awe is what inspires us to be not only present, but to also recognize all the possibilities about what it means to be human. Everything that we're possibly capable of that we don't necessarily take the time to acknowledge and notice on a daily basis. And so failure, to your previous point, failure is not something we necessarily want to just sign on the dotted line for every opportunity to fail that there is at this, but we do want to make sure that we're not afraid of it, right? We want to make sure we're approaching life in the way our our individual lives in a way that we know that failure like stress is inevitable. It's a part of growth. If we don't, we learn some of the best lessons we learn in our lives through failing or through making mistakes. The trick is to not ignore because of the shame and the guilt surrounding those mistakes or the loss that we haven't grieved over, right? The trick is to not ignore those mistakes and the lessons they teach us. Mm. If you make a mistake at, at, or fail at something, at the very, very least, it is our responsibility to, without shame and guilt, as much as possible, look back and without judgment, look back at that situation. Just be like, oh, okay, what did I do wrong here? What could I have done better, mm. right? What could I change to make it the least judgmental statement, right? What could I change next time I do this to make sure that I get the best possible outcome that's closest to my goals? Yeah. And, and that is really what this is all about. And and the more that we go through that process, which is a repetitive process, um, ideally one that continues to evolve over time so we don't make the exact same mistakes over and over and over again, um, that process results in getting us that much closer to those awe-inspiring moments that really help us understand what we're really capable of, right? Mm. What is really possible with this lifetime that we're in. And sink you into awe, which is, I, you could almost say grace. It's like it's something is given to you that's bigger than you, that that you, just, you, you paradoxically disappear, but are also very clear to yourself. I, I, I think that's beautiful. Can you share, I bet some people are wondering, what are some of these? I'm particularly interested in how to stop judging as much. Uh, I'm a comedian. I make my living. Judging is doesn't necessarily mean negatively judging, but I compare things, and, and this will trip you out. Living with Val, I'm noticing how I'm sort of unconsciously, or you know, we're doing it consciously, I guess, because I'm talking about it, but sort of modeling for her how to do it, meaning. Uh, this friend of yours, uh, I'm making these examples up, but this is your Joey friend. That's like your dumb friend from friends. This is your Phoebe. That's sort of the, your ditzy friend. Like, because that's what creative comedy people tend to do. We make archetypes and then we just pay attention to the evidence that reinforces them. Uh, so what are some of your practices that help us judge less or just some of your practices that help you engage with your gratitude, with your compassion, some, some practical steps that people can take? That's a great question. And I think, you know, this is really where the most fun, actionable stuff comes in. And, it, and, and to, at the risk of sounding repetitive, I 
repetition, of course, is how we learn best, right? But the risk of sounding repetitive, I think what we're talking about is that is being more present and doing everything that we can to bring ourselves into a more present human being kind of listening dominant state where we don't feel a responsibility to do anything. We don't feel a responsibility to right the ship immediately or to right a perceived wrong situation, which is in, in psychology or psychiatry, we often call that the writing reflex where somebody says like they're feeling like shit to you. And then you're just like, Oh, I have an idea of how you can fix that. Right. That's usually not what they want. Anyone who's married knows that when your partner comes to you and starts telling you about how, how crappy they're feeling, that the last thing they typically want to hear is you immediately try to figure out how to solve the problem for them. Just go on a usually, walk. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Get your heart rate yeah. up. Just shut relax. The fuck up. Yeah. Shut <laughs> the fuck up. It's not right. a fix it. It's a feel it. Yes. Right. And they want to be heard right? That's what they actually want. Anyone who's struggling, anyone who's suffering, whether it's us or another person, they just want to be heard. And they want the acknowledgement that they know that you're hearing them without waiting to speak. And so, and that is true presence, right? So the way that we do that is we help people recognize that our minds literally can be anywhere. They can be in the past, they can be in the present, or they can be in the future. And typically for most of us in a day-to-day productive work life, they are in the past or in the future. Mm. Our bodies are always present. So they're, the, both of these things are connected, but our bodies are always in the here and now. So all of the exercises that we do that are, you know, they have lots of names like vagal toning or parasympathetic toning or uh, anything that are all, you know, meditation, breath work, mindfulness, yoga, movement, meditation, exercise, Qigong, uh, Apollo, soothing touch, soothing music therapies, float tanks, the list goes on, right? And all of these techniques are simply put grounding the mind, which could be anywhere back into the present body. It Mm. brings ourselves back into our bodily awareness, back into the present, out of the past and out of the future, and reminds us that we're safe enough to be present. And that allows us to be in that sort of listening dominant present state that facilitates that non-judgment that we've been talking about, right? When we're not in the, when we're not thinking about the past and we can be present with something, then we're not judging it based on past experiences. That's what judgment really is. Mm. And it's acknowledged. And and it's also to add that when we, this is not something that's just going to come automatically, right? It's not just going to be like, oh, I've just decided that this makes sense. So I'm going to do it. And I'm never going to feel, I'm never going to judge again. It takes practice. And when we start to feel that judgment coming in, when we're in a present state, we've grounded ourselves, we've done the breathing, we've done the self-touch, we've gotten the hugs or turned the Apollo on, you're still feeling judgmental over yourself or your situation, that creates the opportunity to draw awareness to the judgment, to not judge yourself for judging, right? And then to express gratitude for recognizing what you're doing. And then to say, thanks, but no thanks. This isn't useful to me right now. Mm. And then you bring yourself again back into the present. And the more that you do this, the more that we all do this, we literally are retraining those those old neural pathways, those wide roads, right, around taking the path towards, as you said earlier, taking the road that's been familiar and constantly traveled that we've been taught to follow. And it's helping us recognize, okay, maybe there's certain times that this road is really useful, but most of the time it's actually taking away from me just being me and feeling present and connected to myself and others around me. And then that 
uh, at the same time serves as a pathway to reinforcing a sense of trust in ourselves and our own intuition, which then sets a foundation for growth. It's like reparenting. It's like reestablishing yourself as a trustworthy captain of your own ship. Right. It's really interesting. Just because people hear me complain so much about my dog, what you said about judgment is in the past and our bodies are in the present. It's just fucking brilliant. Val talks about singing in the vagus, vagus nerve, right? Um, what happens in the vagus nerve, you know what I mean? Uh, but if you're singing, how unsafe could you be? That's one right. way to put it. So we love, we love singing and silly singing. I've also had somebody tell Singing's me that great. putting your legs up on a chair and just laying on the ground puts you in your parasympathetic nervous system. So there's these really basic ways, but they're all just dropping you in your body, which is present. So to give you an example of my dog, my parents fought when I was a kid. So loud noise is just not safe to me. In fact, it sort of extended to a deeper issue, which we're not going to solve today, but it's that people aren't safe. Um, I would like to point out that this um, fundamental core negative belief has led to a lot of beneficial stand-up comedy, uh, television, art. I'm not – even my dad's text has led to a very rich, lively conversation. Of and course. before he texted me this morning, I was sitting and I was just thinking, what use am I whole? I'm, only, I'm, I'm better – used to this ecosystem, if I'm also experiencing what they're experiencing, that I might comment on the same feelings and fears and all that stuff. That's why I hate Superman. Again, I'm mentioning Superman. What use is a a perfect being uh, unless a meteor is coming towards the earth? Um, All of that is to say, when I hear my dog bark, like you said, I know that I'm overreacting and I can't just say, Pete, it's not your dad yelling. You know right. what I'm saying? But I hear a deep – it's not like a yip, 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 yip. It's, not like, it's like a deep, frightening – I've never been attacked by a dog. It just reminds me of yelling. By the way, people's music, neighbors playing music, same sort of trigger. I don't like hearing things. It makes me feel out of control. That's why I like comedy. I am in control of the noise. Right. That's why I like making television. If you've ever been on a TV shoot, you go, I don't like the sound of that in the background. Someone makes it stop. It's like a control fetishist dream. How yeah. – and again, I'm not putting this on you just for the sake of people listening. If they have simple triggers like a dog barking, is there an Apollo technique or is it just what we're saying? Just try to be present and and – a dime at a time before you know it, we'll have a hundred dollars and I won't freak out as much at my dog because we're having conversations like this. So, so uh, yes. And yes, I think that the first, the first thing I wanted to say is to commend you on your personal use of humor as a coping strategy, because I want, I, I think everybody needs to know if they, in case they don't, that even according to Sigmund Freud over a hundred years ago, humor was, it has was and has been known as the most advanced human coping strategy for stress uh, and uh, and adversity. So just just to put that out there, wow, humor should humor is often demeaned, but it is should not be disrespected. It is the most advanced or one of the most advanced coping strategies that we have at our disposal, and wow. probably deserves a little more attention on a regular basis. Can I just add to that? This is interesting. If I go to an Ivy League school to perform. I never think, oh, I'm not smart enough to make the. I feel like I feel like they will get it. You know what I mean? I feel like the intelligent people understand 
we need this, we need this, we need this. I don't know why I mentioned that. Like, I'll be intimidated talking to a super smart person unless they're paying me to make them laugh. And then I'm like, I don't try to up it. I just go like, I know you get it. <laughs> so thank you for that. That's beautiful. Um, keep going. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, so th- I think that's really important for everybody to understand regarding humor and how we overcome stress. I think the other side of it is that if we don't feel safe, then anything that's unfamiliar or anything that is happening around us that is uncertain or feels like it's out of our control that is captivating or capturing our attention is going to increase our stress response. If we're not feeling physically, mentally, emotionally, even financially, legally, spiritually safe at baseline, then uh, anything that comes into our experience that is unpredictable, uncertain, or out of our control from what we can tell, like a dog barking, like somebody playing music uh, that we can't turn down, any of these things can drive a stress response um, and trigger our sympathetic uh, sympathetic uh, fight or flight response to go up and makes our body and can make our body think that we're in a survival threat state. Oh, I can attest to that. It's it's as real as no disrespect to people who really heard bombs dropping. My mom did, but it feels like that serious to the end. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Our bodies don't know the difference, right? Oh. Heart rate's still going up. Blood pressure's still going up. Breath it's mambo number five up. through the wall, but not to, yeah. the, not to the lizard. <laughs> right. And you start to sweat and you start oh. to have racing thoughts and all the same things start to happen because that response tunnel vision. is, yeah, yeah the tunnel vision, right. That rigidity or concreteness you described earlier, That's which right. is really like a rigidity of thinking, yes. which is directly. And I think this is really important also to understand for everyone is that that rigidity you mentioned earlier is great term, the concreteness that occurs that you feel in those situations, because that's exactly what's happening to our thought process. Our that's thought right. process is becoming rigid around only really allow accepting uh, things that are familiar approaches. Mm-hmm. And so taking on a new approach to healing or to managing stress like deep breathing or yoga or exercise or nutrition management or, or, you know, any of these other things that require a decent amount of effort, meditation, et cetera. All of those things seem really, really hard when you're already in a state of chronic stress or lack of safety in your life. That's why you go straight to the ice cream or you masturbate or you watch John wick or you, what, right, or, you, what, or, or you spend all your waking conscious time at work or having sex or right, gambling right. or playing that's video right. games. Cause it's like a distraction that's from right. the, that really uncomfortable feeling that all of us have felt in our lives of not feeling safe. Who wants mm. to feel that? It's terrible. Mm. Right. And yet we all feel it sometimes every single day. And without learning the, t- the strategies to cope like humor, like breath work and meditation and all these other things we've talked about, which is most of us, believe it or not, who have not learned or mastered those techniques. That's why we developed Apollo was because there, we, we asked the question, right? Is there a way to tap into this system that breath activates, that meditation and mindfulness activate, that soothing touch activates without requiring effort, significant effort or another person to be around when you're struggling with overcoming a stressful situation or any kind of challenge or adversity? Mm. And so when we asked that question, we started to have answers come back, which are that if we could replicate in some ways the feeling of soothing touch with vibration, and in the case of Apollo, it's using sound waves, 
which is music composed for your skin instead of your ears, then the skin will feel that. That will send a signal to your emotional cortex that just like soothing touch says, if you have time to be aware of this feeling right now, then you, of the vibration or this touch, then you can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. Otherwise, I, your body, would not allow you to pay attention to this feeling if you were actually running from a lion. Mm. And then you get this rapid positive feedback loop that starts to occur of I am safe, I am safe, I am safe, just like what you were saying when you put your hands on your chest mm-hmm. and or when you're getting a hug. And it starts out as a subconscious thought loop. We're not necessarily aware of why we feel better. We just do. And then as time passes and we practice it, then we start to realize, oh, I feel safe enough to take a deep breath right now. I feel safe enough to go for a walk right now and take myself out of the situation in a comfortable and and calm way or to stay in the situation and engage with it that when you're giving a talk or in a social situation when you're tired or something like that, that you might not have felt comfortable doing before because now that you realize you're not under threat, everything becomes easier, Mm. right? And so it's really about using Apollo helps to retrain that, that loop that we all could be, could know how to do. And if we taught, if we were taught it as kids, it would be like second nature, but we weren't, we were taught the opposite. So now it's acknowledging that we were taught the opposite, acknowledging that might not be serving us, introducing the tools that we can have, that we have access to, to be able to start helping ourselves retrain our bodies and our minds to act number one in harmony together in resonance. So they're working together rather than against each other. And number two, to remember when we're actually safe Mm -hmm. and how to remind ourselves of that in any number of situations so that we can make decisions from a standpoint of strength and safety rather than from fear and vulnerability. I love everything you've ever said. I'm going to go ahead and say that. And that's what, that's what yoga is union, the getting the head and the body together. And as you said, the body is in the moment. So get the head in the moment. Right. You're also reminding me in the first 10 years of stand up, talk about a fight or flight situation. You really think I have a joke about it. I say your shoulders go up because you want to protect your neck. You fold your arms when you do stand up because you want to protect your stomach. These are all kill strokes. So like what I, before any techniques like meditation, breathing, and now the Apollo, I would literally just say to myself, um, you're not in any danger. Like, and that was the first 10 years of standup was convincing yourself through repetition of doing it and surviving. No one wants to hurt you. You are safe. Just because I think you'll think it's interesting. That's exactly I'd be in, right. in some like Ramada or something or a, or a super eight motel. And I would leave the room to go and do the college or the club or whatever it was. And I'd say, no matter what, I promise you'll sleep in this bed tonight. And that was, that was, when we say practice, we think it has to be so woo-woo. That was the practice, was closing the door and looking at the bed. And then when you come back and you are on the bed, I, I have to under, believe you know what's happening in the brain. It's reinforcing it. It was like, see, I told you you'd be on this bed and right. you are on the bed. And, and then slowly trust. You, you develop trust with yourself. Like you're saying to yourself, I wouldn't make you do something that is going to hurt you. Uh, and even though I know you think the crowd is going to form like Voltron into one big thing and decapitate you, I promise you they're not going to hurt you. It's exactly. re- really beautiful stuff. I've noticed the, the thing that really made me nuts for the Apollo was the first time I meditated with it. 
And I, I told um, some of the people I've been in contact with uh, that I was like, I went deeper than I had been in years. Like I didn't realize I, let's not call it a slump. That's making it into a story. Sure. And, right, right. Like I just went so deep. I went as deep as I did the first time I meditated when you have that beginner's luck. And now that I've done it dozens of times with the Apollo, I notice it's actually a little bit better if it's not that I try to ignore that there's something vibrating on my wrist. I actually try to tune into it in a very subtle way because it is subtle. So if you're like bringing your your attention to the a, a pinprick of, of focus, which is the subtle feeling, the thing I say in the ad sometimes I go, it's like it's – I go, is this thing meditating for me? <laughs> because it is going like – I'm oversimplifying because it does way more than that. If right. you're noticing it, it might tone down and then maybe it comes back and it has a, a, a far greater um, vocabulary of vibration than say your phone does. And it's using that. But I've noticed it's not a, a game of trying to not think about the Apollo. I actually do better if I do think about the Apollo. I go, no, what does it feel like? And that right. suddenly, and just to continue the compliment, when your nervous system does go, I'm safe, you have all the tools you need to get as woo-woo as you want. If you want to be a soul, if you want to merge with the universe, whatever you need to do, the body is no longer resisting that because it feels comfortable enough for you to go into outer space if you'd like to. So I was going to say, and the same and meditation in this way that you describe is actually the same as with sleep. It's the idea that when we enter into sleep or we enter into meditation, it's actually a somewhat vulnerable state of being. In our physical bodies, we are aware of our bodies oftentimes some in meditation, but sometimes we're, again, out in space or out in some other part of our consciousness. And that is inherently, in a lot of ways, making us less aware of the physical surroundings around us. When we're asleep, we know we're less physically aware or aware of the physical surroundings. Therefore, we're more physically vulnerable. Therefore, if we're not safe, it's very, very challenging for us to let go and truly lean in fully into the experience. Mm. And so it starts out with Apollo as a training tool, like you said, where you it the gentle vibrations just help the body feel safe on the surface, which allows us to let go and grounding us in our bodies. It, it allows us to truly lean into that experience and just go with it because we're not worried about the unknown. We're not worried about what may come up. We're not worried about someone attacking us or jumping on us or taking advantage of us because we're physically vulnerable. Mm. It allows us to just be and flow like water through the experience, right? Mm. As Bruce Lee said, water, uh, when it's a cup, it becomes the cup when it's a stream, it becomes a stream. It's not asking, you know, Oh, why am I a cup right now? You know, it's just, yeah. it is a cup. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really interesting to think about that. And I think the other side of this is to add to your point about paying attention to the feeling now and, and whether or not Apollo is meditating for you or not, it's not meditating for you, but what it is doing is through sending these, you know, safety signals to your brain through the skin, it is showing you what it feels like to be a little closer to a meditative state, mm. a meditative, present, mindful state by helping us feel safer. So by helping us, if, if we don't remember what it feels like, many of us don't, 
to actually be able to make ourselves feel safe or remind ourselves that we're safe enough to fall asleep or say well and safe enough to meditate and safe enough to be vulnerable and embrace that vulnerability, then it is, it, it's extremely challenging to enter that state. How can you do it if you don't even remember what it feels like to be there? Mm. So you put Apollo on somebody, you turn it on, they feel it. And it reminds the body of a familiar feeling, often an old feeling of, oh, this is what it feels like to feel safe. This is what it feels like to be present with myself and to be aware of my, the feelings in my body and, to, and what it feels like kind of to meditate. And then all of a sudden, over time, it, it trains us to do that better. And again, I will never say that Apollo is a substitute for meditation or a substitute for breath work or, or soothing touch from a loved one. It absolutely isn't. But for those of us, most of us, I would say, who haven't mastered those techniques or who don't have the support around us to be able to dive into those techniques whenever we need them, Apollo is an incredible tool that just helps get that process started again, right? It's just, mm. it's just jump-starting the car and making sure that we know what it feels like to sleep well so that we know we can do it. We know what it feels like to meditate so that we know what we're aiming for when we sit down to do it. Right. And, and same with focus. I think this is one of the best examples is with ADD. Why are we surprised that there's an epidemic of ADD and ADHD in our country and particularly in the Western world and in adults when we don't teach kids how to concentrate <laughs> on one thing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. For an extended period of time, if you don't teach someone how to concentrate, why would you expect them to be able to do it? It's like, if nobody tell you how to enjoy the beach, Mr. Leno, why exactly. would you think but it didn't even occur to us, most of us, to go, wait, no one taught me how to enjoy the beach. It's not easy to enjoy the beach. It's not easy to enjoy traffic. It's not easy to enjoy waiting in line at the DMV, but you can do it. That's really interesting. So the clear and focused setting you think has potential or, or already is helping or could help with things like ADD? So I can tell you that we are currently conducting trials with Apollo for ADD and ADHD because we've had tremendous results in some early clinical studies. Um, but the most common two reports that we get with Apollo are it helps me focus when I'm struggling to focus because I'm tired or I'm distractible or too much going on or whatever. And it helps me sleep when I can't sleep. Those are the two biggest uses of the device. And so when we saw those reports coming back from our users it, and, you know, and of course we all use it ourselves, right? Our whole team uses it almost every day. Um, most of my colleagues use it almost every day. And so we would just ask people. And when you talk to people, of course they tell you, yeah, like when I'm really tired and I can't focus at work and I have to spend all these hours doing taxes or paperwork or things that I am not particularly interested in, but they got to get done. I throw that clear and focused mode on and I am in the zone yeah. as it. And then people started with ADHD and ADD started telling us that they were experiencing similar benefits to amphetamines and even, uh, and even reducing their amphetamine burden. And that's when we started to think, okay, this could be a real tool here for kids. Yeah. One of the things I say, and I, I hope you hear the compliment here as I go, I don't put it on social and open unless I need it because it'll almost, if I'm already feeling stimulated, it'll, I don't want to say it's too much, but I'll turn it off. I'll go, thank you. We're, we're good. I'm already there. Yeah. And I like telling people that because it's a way of saying it's no joke. It's meaning it's not just like, oh, it's this is my vibrating bracelet. It's like a mood ring. It doesn't really do anything. Meaning once I feel like I've blossomed socially, I'll turn it off, uh, even though it's not unpleasant or anything, but it feels like real 
medicine. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it, it really is. I mean, if you think about the, the power of music, right, that we talked about earlier, that we often just take totally for granted, you could be having the worst day of your life and you step into your car or into a room where your favorite song is playing on the speakers and all of a sudden you don't remember that you're having a shitty day. Yeah. Right. That right. is real power. Like that's that right. is real. Uh, you can call it medicine. You can call it a powerful tools. You can, I mean, you call it, you know, neurophysiology you can call it whatever we want, but it's very real and it's very potent and very powerful. And most of the time we are not making decisions about actively that are conscious decisions about what sounds we're exposed to. Right. There could be construction, yard work, traffic sounds, city Dogs. sounds, right? dog barking, other yeah. people living in close quarters, playing music around us. All of these things that we don't have control over are sending high intensity, sometimes signals to us or high or, or frequencies that are literally disharmonious and dissonant from the state we're in and the state we want to be in. And so why would we be surprised that we're upset when we're surrounded by unpleasant stimuli, yeah, right? right? So Apollo is really our way of saying, okay, we know you're going to be surrounded by unpleasant stimuli. Why? Because all of us are. Throw something on you that's close to your body that counters those unpleasant stimuli with something you're in control of that sends overwhelmingly pleasant stimuli and then let us know how your body responds. Well, that was, I think I started to give you this compliment at the beginning, but I think maybe I already did, forgive me, but I was like, knowing there's something you can do is one of my favorite things about it. Meaning... There's a benefit that's beyond the Apollo itself. And we've already talked about what an extreme benefit it is. Also just going like, oh, something's really freaking me out. Sorry to keep going to my parents, but like Val and I would go out with my parents. During the lunch, I'd have it on meditation and mindfulness. Even though my eyes were open, I just liked the way it sort of calmed me down. Now we're having a better lunch. Now everybody's benefiting. And on the way home... Again, I don't mean to make them sound like monsters. They're not monsters, but I'm putting it on Rebuild and Recover just because I know it's heavy going back yeah. into something that can make you regress a little bit. You're, we can all relate, I think, to that. For sure. But, but no, like Val and I both in the car, not talking, just like looking at our phones, going into the Apollo and saying, can you help, can you help me re rebuild? It's like... The coolest thing. And I'm so glad to be uh, working with you and, and to be talking with you now. Before I let you go, I lied at the top when I said I'm not going to take too much of your time. I'm going to take so much of your time. I'm just kidding. We're almost done. <laughs> um, I know you love plant medicine, psychedelics, or research in that department as well. And one of the things I said to your team right when I got the Apollos, I was like, I can't believe I've ever taken mushrooms without it. Like, I feel like it would be very beneficial to when you're taking something that's sending you into outer space, which is very, I'm not even talking about huge, I don't take huge doses, although I have, but like for the most part, I just want something that's saying like, Hey, remember it's okay. You're here. It's like, if I were to talk you down from an overwhelming trip, I would say cliche hippie things like David, you are a citizen of this earth. You didn't come into this world. You came out of this world. You belong here. You are a dignified, loved, valued member of all that is. And your awareness is your ticket to the big show. You are not loved by God. You are God's love. These are the comforting things I would say to you. It's beautiful. And beautiful I, affirmations of safety. 
I just felt like saying it because I wanted to hear it. I am not just loved by God. I am made of God's love. When you were talking about the uh, the beingness that is all around us is inside of us. Sometimes Val and I joke where we're like, "You ever freak out about that?" Like, oh, oh, it's it's almost like there's a there's a sun. There's something a million billion times stronger than the sun. Like in uh, the Avengers, remember um, Paul Bettany's yeah. character says, "I have something that is me that isn't me that I don't understand." I was like, "Yeah, same vision. That's all of us. These are metaphors for the soul, but right. like." We've been laughing, Val and I, going, oh, keep it in, keep it in, keep it in, like it's going to bubble out of us and explode. It's the trippiest thing in the world. And psychedelics are one of the things that helped me understand it. As Alan Watts says, when does the flashlight shine on itself? When does the knife cut itself? It's like sometimes I need help. I need a guide to go, uh, here, let me show you that there's something that's seeing and that's who you really are. Sorry, just because I think you'll like it, Val and I go like, Life will be okay. I can't speak for humanity uh, because we could be like dinosaurs. But look at what life has done since dinosaurs. It made dogs. It made mammals. It made oceans teeming with life. It made all of this beautiful stuff. So don't worry. But here's the, the, the punchline is, but you're not David and I'm not Pete. You're really that. So you will be okay, just not in the way that you might want to be. You'd like to know that you're going to be a billionaire and live in Bora Bora, but it's actually better than that. And we call that the good news. Sorry, I'm just preaching now. Um, I like that. What is your tie to psychedelics? What do you, what do you get from them? What interests you about them? And, and do you see an application for the Apollo for someone like me who considers it part of his religious practice? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think, so for those who don't know, I am a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. I have a clinical psychiatry practice um, called the Apollo Clinic, where Apollo is a core part of our treatment program as a non-invasive wearable tool to help improve one's sense of safety and facilitate rebuilding and remembering of trust in ourselves as the core of what healing really stems from sustainable, long lasting healing, not just the feeling of, Oh, I took this medicine and now I'm healed, but the feeling of being on a healing path that grows over time continuously. Right. That's what we're really all looking for. Mm. Um, Not a quick fix because again, those don't exist. So, and that's freedom. Right. Right. Again, Jesus said that he said, pain and suffering will always be among you. And of course, Buddha said that life is suffering and, and, it's not to bum you out. It's to go, what What then? If we're not going to get rid of it, what then? What What next? Right. And I, and I think to that, to that point, that's another uh, conversation that we could dive into. But I think one of the things that comes up a lot of the time with psychedelic medicines is, and, and I think taking a step back about what these medicines are and how they work, I am a trained ketamine-assisted psychotherapist. Um, it's a huge part of my practice. I'm also a trained MDMA assisted psychotherapist, but MDMA is not typically is not currently legal. It's only available for clinical trials. So we're not using that in practice at this time. Um, but hopefully by 2023, we all will be. And I, and I think that, and the trials are going very well. So that's all really fantastic. If I could just pay you a compliment, there's no one based on your temperament and you're just, let's use the hippie word vibe. There's no one I would run to either of those therapies under, under your supervision. I just think that's, I'm so glad you're doing that. And, and the work is incredible because I think it, it, in a lot of ways, the psychedelic medicine 
when used in the proper way, and I appreciate your kind words, um, when used in the proper way and with the proper preparation beforehand, um, and of course, the talk therapy and integration afterwards, where we really work through what came up and talk about what parts of the subco- someone's subconscious they were experiencing and, and really dive into what lessons can be learned from that, um, is this really tender, vulnerable, beauteous part of ourselves that, or many parts of ourselves that we have neglected for a long period of time. And uh, sometimes it's many, many years. Sometimes it's not that long, but ultimately it's, it brings up that there are parts of ourselves or draws our awareness to the fact that there are parts of ourselves that have not themselves felt safe within us. Mm. Right. And so when we talk about like shining the spotlight back onto ourselves or different parts of ourselves, you can imagine for a moment that, we, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, imagine that there is a way that we have been taught to see the world and to see ourselves since we were brought into this or came into this world. And ever since we started interacting with things in this world, in this lifetime, there were certain things that we were taught to see and, and, and understand in a certain way about ourselves and the world around us. Judgment is a perfect example of that. And there were, and, and that, and that way of being, that way of seeing the world gets recorded. If you can imagine this metaphor gets recorded onto a tape and that tape is in our minds and it's just has the play and repeat button on the entire time of our lives. And it's literally just going over and over and over again, the same thing, the same way of thinking about ourselves and the same way of thinking about the world and new experiences come in. And at times they force us to revise the tape, but most of the time the tape is the tape and those experiences just kind of either reinforce it or get are confusing and we disregard them entirely. Mm. And so what psychedelic medicines are doing is psyche means mind and delos means to show. And so we're using a biochemical tool or a molecular tool to activate pathways in the brain through the chemical neurotransmitter receptor system that just like meditation or mindfulness practices, when practiced for a long enough time, allow us to shine that spotlight for a certain number of hours back onto ourselves, into our subconscious, the part of ourselves that we might have only experienced in dreams when our conscious ego self feels safe enough to let go and, and kind of take a back seat. And then basically pause that narrative, right? It's pressing pause on that tape that's been playing to allow us to look deeper and see what is here, what else is going on beneath the tape, right? And Mm -hmm. and then start to have an opportunity through the integration process of saying, okay, I'm seeing all this stuff, all this interesting materials coming up. Some of it's scary, some of it's thrilling, some of it's uh, uh, shameful or guilty, et cetera, right? It could be any number of things. And then how do I take what I've learned from that material and integrate it into a tape that is reflective of what my life is actually and what I want it to be, right? Hot dog. So so we're revising, we're just revising the tape. We're just revising the narrative. And, And we should, it's our duty because we are not the same day to day. 
moment to moment, we are changing and evolving as, as beings, right? So it's, it is the onus is on us as individuals to constantly seek to revise that tape. Does that require psychedelics? Of course not. But when that tape has been repeated over and over and over again for sometimes decades, and it's been ingrained in a really intense, deep way, sometimes for some people, throwing in a little biochemical assistant in the process with the therapy, of course, can radically transform people's ability to look back at that tape non-judgmentally and recognize that it's just tape and it's, and it's just as able to be revised as anything else. That is, that is the voice of the plant medicines. It's just a tape. You know what I'm saying? Like the awareness that there is a tape, the awareness that there are the two paths. It's this whole conversation has been so moving to me because I think it's why consciousness, meaning remaining Jesus says to the disciples and Buddha means I am awake. Jesus says to the disciples, stay awake, stay alert. It's the last thing he says to them in the garden of Gethsemane, stay awake. And I'm like, that's the whole thing. Of course we've, again, don't get me started on how we've turned that into I'm in and you're out and you're going to burn and I'm going to go to Ambrosia town. But it's, it's the, the psychological value of staying awake and noticing that there's a tape is, is such a takeaway for me. Um, I feel like MDMA is, if you've ever wished for someone from the outside to come with you to your dysfunctional Thanksgiving that will stand up and say, this is all a metaphor, by the way, what the fuck is going on here? And, and sort of lovingly turn the table over and go, what is this? You're all reading from a script that I wasn't handed. You all know your lines and your roles and you're all just parroting it back. The same shit. I've been to how many Thanksgivings? It's the same Thanksgiving. And I feel like psychedelics are the spacious, free outsider who's really an insider that can go, like you said, stop the tape. What's going on here? It's like the the get real mentor, like the guy that's not going to let you keep smoking crack in that Richard Pryor routine. That's like, come on, man, what, what the fuck are you doing? Like they're going to stay on top of you and you have nowhere to hide because it's you. It's, it's, it's coming from inside the house. <laughs> right. And there has to be some intention involved, right? And ideally like a facilitation uh, by someone who was, you know, what we call holding space for you so that you feel safe within that unusual, you know, psychedelic experience where your tape has been paused because when that tape is paused, it can be a very unfamiliar and confusing place to be for people who have never been there before. Right. We all of a sudden people could ask the question of, well, if my tape's not playing, who am I? Right. And then, and so having people around who understand what to replace that tape with or that narrative, how to revise it thoughtfully, non-judgmentally, and how to love yourself for the opportunity that you've created for yourself is really, really important. And when we don't have that, or when we use psychedelic medicines as a tool for escape rather than engagement with ourselves, then that's when people really start to go down a slippery slope of, of, of you know, potentially damaging or, or harmful experiences with the medicine. And to that point, actually, of the, I think the last question you asked was, how can Apollo integrate into these experiences? Yeah. Is that we have seen it integrate very well. And this actually ties back to the quote from, I think, I think the Buddhist quote that you brought up earlier, which is that you can't avoid 
pain and suffering. And I would reframe that to say, you can't avoid pain. None of us can avoid pain. Pain is an integral part of all of our lives. However, suffering, suffering is avoidable because suffering comes from resistance to what is. If we are, if we perceive ourselves to be unsafe, if we were taught to not feel safe, if we were taught to do things that continue this narrative or this tape of not being safe or being a victim of our own experience or not being part of the greater divinity that we're all actually a part of, that all contributes to a sense of lack of safety, which makes us feel afraid, which makes us resist change, right? Resist growth and resist the unknown. That resistance literally is directly proportionate to suffering. And so what, where Apollo comes into play if it's like a, a wearable token in Inception, right? It's this idea that you have something with you that ideally, you know, we teach breathwork in our clinic. We breathwork and self-touch and soothing music are critical parts of the psychedelic experience. But sometimes people get lost in there and sometimes people really go deep and they don't remember what's where who they are, what's going on. And when they have their token, Apollo, that they don't need to understand how to, how to breathe to use, you can just tap two buttons on your body and turn it back on. All of a sudden, they're brought right back into their body. They're centered in their in their present, and they realize that they actually have control over how they feel in that moment. And effectively, it restores agency. And by helping people feel safe with restored agency and empowerment, they're empowered to release resistance, right? Mm-hmm. And then when we release resistance and we realize the power that we have to do that, which also goes hand in hand with letting go of judgment of ourselves and others and these old lessons that aren't necessarily serving us at the same time, we embrace the opportunities to navigate around suffering rather than signing up for it. <laughs> mm. right? It reminds me of what you said about dreaming. That was beautiful that like when your consciousness feels safe enough to sort of dissolve into the unconscious and go relive a day of junior high, like, but everything's underwater, right. like, but it feels safe enough. So it's like, if you're having difficulty merging with any situation, the soothingness helps that surrender, which re- reduces suffering. It's really interesting. People on this pod have heard me say it a million times, but when I get up in the middle of the night, as I did last night with my baby and rocker, the suffering only comes and you see your rapscallion, mischievous brain doing it. If you watch, and I know you yep. do, you see it going, why is this happening to me? It always happens. Why do I have to do this right now? <laughs> and then you go, it looks for it. It looks for what you have to do it during the day. Now, and it, it was this interview, uh, this conversation. I was like, I'm going to be tired for Dr. Dave. It's going to be bad. Um, the podcast is going to be bad. People are going to stop listening. Like, what the fuck? Are, what is this self torture. But that's why I sort of subscribe to the idea that the ego or the false self or whatever you want to call it, the the mosaic that thinks it's real, the straw man of your personality and your likes and dislikes, wants to be real by any means necessary, including it would take you suffering as it rather than vanishing until we get better at letting it go away, which again seems to be what we've been talking about this whole time. Stop the tape. The tape isn't you. Question your thoughts. The thoughts aren't you. Well, what are you? I mean, I have my answer. We usually, and this will be the last question because 
We've taken almost two hours of your time by this point. That's what we asked for, and we're grateful. Thank you. Do you have any framework of the universe? I've gotten a little glimpse of it, but do you have any? Seems kind of a Buddhisty leaning, or what's what's your what's your flavor? Uh, I guess I would say a multidisciplinary approach. I think there's so many traditions that have beauty and wisdom surrounding them, and so I try to pick and choose the, my favorite parts of each. Yeah. Um, I think that. I, I mean, I love the the Buddhist traditions that we've been talking about and the Buddhist philosophies of life and really, you know, letting go of resistance, just, you know, focusing and allowing ourselves to be ourselves, right? To let go of, of, of you know, questioning these, of the, let go of these ideas that we were taught and what they mean, right, about what we were taught to think they mean about us and use that as an opportunity to embrace the unknown about us and get to know who we really are. Mm. Right. This is this life that we're in is so precious and it is so beautiful. And it has, I would say infinite capacity for beauty and, and, and love and, and fulfillment for all of us. And we, us into as individuals are the single biggest obstacle in the way of achieving that beauty and that fulfillment and that joy and, and graciousness in every moment of our lives, simply by denying that we have a choice, mm. right? If we deny that we have a choice, if we deny that we have power with our words and the words that we use being one of the most fundamental choices of anything we do in any given moment, then we're denying our own free will and we're denying our ability to achieve joy and fulfillment in our lives and therefore the lives of everyone else around us. And that denial creates resistance, which creates suffering. And that suffering is so familiar that we basically gravitate to, right? And so it's, it's about understanding that, which is right there in front of us, the power of our words and our choices and saying, I want that power. I want that responsibility, right? I want to know that I can change my life with my decisions and my thought process and my choices. And that could not be more, I guess, you know, healing and empowering than any, what is more powerful than, than knowing that, truly knowing it in your heart and seeing the outcomes as you practice it, right? As you practice gratitude, feeling more gracious because you get gratitude back when you put it out. And then you feel like you're able to live more of a life of grace that's smooth, less resistance, less suffering because you have spent so much effort being gracious, right? And then everything just seems to flow from there. Beautiful. I So there's a Franciscan friar who's like a father to me. He's my spiritual father. And his name is Richard Rohr. And I sent him an Apollo. Um, I don't well, know if he, you. yeah, I mean, I've bought so many, I think I've broken even, um, <laughs> from, I'm just kidding. I just keep gifting them because as we're talking, who doesn't want those? But I was like, I want to see what happens if Richard Rohr has an Apollo. And just to echo what you just said, when I hang out with him, the way that he talks to people is first of all, it's imitable and it's gorgeous. So what he would say to you is just like, look at you, 
caring about others and, and imagining what it might be like to be stressed and helping alleviate that stress. But he does it to everybody. We, we were at a hotel and, and he was like, every time I stay here, you're always here in the lobby, helping people feel welcome, always with that smile on your face. And he's an older man, so it's, it, it, he gets away with it more than maybe if I did it, because that, that's like a trope that we're comfortable with, the kind old man. But I've done that impression for my nanny. I'll just go, look at you caring for our baby as if she's your own, driving her, putting her in a car seat, feeding her. Thank you so much. What a huge heart you must have. Just saying it, like MDMA might say it, just saying a big truth. It melts people's hearts. I'm just trying to echo what you said. Like We have so much more agency, not just to control our own lives, but to literally bless other people's lives. And it doesn't take any effort or barely any effort. What did that make you think of? I saw you going all over. I actually lost your audio for the last 20 seconds. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to get it to restart. And I'm like, what's going on? It just cut out. <laughs> all you need to know is I agree with what you just said. And not only can we impact ourselves, but we can impact one another. And I think that's what we've done with this conversation. And man, I'm excited to know you, Dr. Dave. Thank you for taking the time. Likewise. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for making this. What a, and by the way, I'll say it at the beginning, but it, it's apolloneuro.com slash weird is um, for 10% off. And I've been sending everybody there because people ask what it is. And I can't wait to tell them. So I'm so happy for everything you're doing. And I hope we get to meet in real life one day. Likewise. Yeah. Can't wait. Thanks, man. Would you say we have the guest sign off? Uh, it's just a way to be, I guess, inclusive. Would you say the catchphrase, which is keep it crispy? And that's how we'll say goodbye. Keep it crispy. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm so crispy. My ice cream make you want to